Welcome to episode number 9 of Calm History. This is a chronicle episode featuring the story of Henry Ford, part 2, his first business idea. I'm Harris, and I created this time machine of tranquility to bring you the drama and excitement of history, but in a calm tone, so you can just chill and relax. If you are interested in getting free access to the bonus episodes of Calm History, along with 400 other episodes for a limited time, then just use the link in the episode notes. I've also just launched a new giveaway. I'm giving away three full-year access codes to the Slumber One mobile app. Each code is worth 374 U.S. dollars. Winners will be able to access all the features in this app, which include sleep tracking, sleep journaling, routine setting, wake-up targeting, gratitude journaling, worry journaling, program reminders, sleep coaches, sleep badges, sleep education, nature sounds, meditations, sleep music, bedtime stories, breathing exercises, and progressive muscle relaxation. Yeah, this sleep app is like a Swiss army knife of sleep solutions. To enter the giveaway for the Slumber One app, just use the link in the episode notes. Alright, this is part two of a series of episodes about Henry Ford, the founder of the Ford Motor Company. You will be hearing his journey to create the first automobile that middle-class Americans could afford. If you haven't listened to part one yet, then hit pause and go enjoy that episode. If you have listened to part one already, then I'll start with a summary of that episode to remind you where things left off. In the prior episode, young Henry is born. He tinkers with mechanical projects on his family's farm in his youth. And then, at the age of 16, he heads to the city to find a job. He finds a job as a machinist during the day and works fixing watches and clocks at night. At his machinist job, he mastered all the intricate details of building steam engines, but saw inefficiency everywhere he looked. The prior episode ended with him quitting that machinist job. In this episode, young Henry finds a new and more organized job. He also develops a business idea with several friends. This business idea will have nothing to do with cars, but will have some of the core principles of the future Ford Motor Company. For over a year, he plans his new business, but when he is just about to launch it, an unfortunate event occurs. 
he will leave Detroit. And for a while, all of his big city plans and dreams will also be left behind. Oh, and maybe also he finds love. Okay, time to begin today's romantic, uh, I mean, historical tale. I hope it distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. The Story of Henry Ford, Part 2, His First Business Idea After nine months of working at the James Flower Company as a machinist, Henry Ford decided to move on. He had mastered all the details of building steam engines while also witnessing a lot of inefficiency in the way they did things. He was ready for a new challenge. At the age of 17, young Henry Ford had found the one thing he was to follow all his life. Not machines merely, but the machine idea. His next job was with the dry dock engine works, manufacturers of marine machinery. He went to work for the dry dock company because he liked its organization, not because he was trying to make more money. His pay was now two and a half dollars a week, 50 cents less per week than his prior job. He still worked at night for a jeweler, fixing clocks and watches, so that also helped to cover his expenses. After nearly a year of complete absorption in mechanical problems, his natural liking for human companionship began to assert itself. At the dry dock works, he found a group of young men like himself. They were hard-working, fun-loving young mechanics who all got along well. They were clean, energetic, clear-thinking, and ambitious, as most mechanics are. After the day's work was finished, they rushed through the wide doors into the street. They let out a whoop of delight into the outdoor air, jostling each other, playing practical jokes, enjoying a little rough horseplay among themselves. In the evenings, they wandered about the streets, arms thrown over each other's shoulders, commenting on things they saw. Before long, Henry Ford was a leader among them, as he had been among the boys in the Greenfield School. Also, once again, he diverted the energy of his followers into his own channels. Pursuits that had interested them seemed to him a waste of time and strength. They smoked, drank, wrestled, boxed, experimented with relationships, and overall lived the life of typical youth. Young Henry was a bit more reserved. He didn't smoke, he didn't drink, and girls seemed illogical to him. I've never tasted liquor in my life, he says, 
I'd as soon think of taking poison. About that time, he developed an interest so strong that it not only absorbed his own attention, but carried that of his friends along with it. Sure enough, it involved a wristwatch. It had taken him only a few months to master his task in the dry dock works so thoroughly that his wages were raised. Later, they were raised again. Then he was getting five dollars a week, more than enough to pay his expenses, without doing night work. He left the jeweler's shop, but he brought with him a watch, the first that he had ever owned. Immediately, he took it apart. When its scattered parts lay on a table before him, he looked at them and marveled. He had paid three dollars for the watch, but couldn't figure out why it cost so much. It ran, he says. It had a dark case. It weighed a good deal, and it went along all right. It never lost or gained more than a certain amount in any given day. But there wasn't anything about that watch that should have cost three dollars. It was nothing but a lot of plain parts made out of cheap metal. I could have made one like it for one dollar or even less. But it cost me three dollars. The only way I could figure out was that there was a lot of waste somewhere. Then he remembered the inefficient methods of production at the James Flower Company. He reasoned that probably the factory that made the watch had turned out only a few hundred of that design and then tried something else, like alarm clocks perhaps. The parts had been made by the dozen. Some of them had probably been filed down by hand to make them fit. Then he got the great idea. A factory. A gigantic factory. Running with the precision of a machine. The factory would turn out watches by the tens of thousands. Watches. All exactly alike. Every part cut by an exact die. He talked it over with the boys at the dry dock works. He was enthusiastic. He showed them that a watch could be made for less than half a dollar by his plan. He juggled figures of thousands of dollars as though they were pennies. The size of the sums didn't stagger him because money was never concrete to him. Money was merely rows of numbers. But to the young fellows who listened, his talk was dazzling. They joined enthusiastically in the idea. Their evenings were now spent in Ford's room, figuring estimates and discussing plans. The watch could be made for 37 cents, provided machinery turned it out by tens of thousands. Henry Ford visualized the factory, 
a factory devoted to one thing, the making of one watch, specialized, concentrated, with no waste of energy. Those eager young men planned the whole thing, from furnaces to assembling rooms. They figured the cost of material by the hundred tons, estimated the exact proportions each metal required. They planned an output of 2,000 watches daily as the point at which the cost of production would be the cheapest. They would sell the watch for 50 cents each and guarantee it for one year. 2,000 watches at a profit of 13 cents each. That was a $260 daily profit. They were dazzled. We needn't stop there. We can increase that output when we get started, Henry Ford declared. Organization will be the key. A lack of organization keeps prices up, for its cost must be charged in on the selling price, and high prices keep sales down. We will work it the other way. Low prices, increased sales, increased output, lower prices. It works in a circle. Listen to this. He held their attention while he talked and calculated about how to eliminate waste here and cut expenses there. Finally, the landlady came up and knocked at the door, asking if they meant to stay up all night. It took time to get his ideas translated into concrete exact figures. He worked over them for nearly a year, holding the enthusiasm of his friends at a fever pitch all that time. At last, he made drawings for the machines he planned, then cut dies for making the different parts of the watch. His plan was complete. A gigantic machine, taking in bars of steel at one end and turning out complete watches at the other. They would produce hundreds of thousands of cheap watches, all alike. The Ford Watch. I tell you, there's a fortune in it. A fortune, the young fellows in the scheme exclaimed to each other. All we need now is the capital. Ford decided at last. He was turning his mind to the problem of getting it when he received a letter from his sister Margaret. His father had been injured in an accident. His older brother was ill. Couldn't he come home for a while? They truly needed him. The letter from home may have come like a dash of cold water on Henry's enthusiastic plans. He'd been thinking in the future, planning, rearranging, adjusting the years just ahead. 
You can't run anything on precedence if you want to make a success, his older self would say. We should be guiding our future by the present instead of being guided in the present by the past. Suddenly, though, the past had come into his calculations. Henry spent a dark day or two over that letter. The universal struggle between the claims of the older generation and the desires of the younger one. There was never really any real question as to the outcome. The machine idea had been the controlling factor in his life, but it had never been stronger than his human sympathies. It is in adjusting them to each other, in making human sympathies a working business policy, that he has made his real success. Henry went home. He intended at that time to stay only until his father was well again, perhaps for a month or so, surely not longer than one summer. The plans for the watch factory were not abandoned. They were only laid aside for a moment. It would be possible to run up to Detroit for a day or two now and then and keep working on getting the necessary capital. But no business on earth is harder to leave than the business of running a farm. When Henry reached home, he found a dozen fields needing immediate action. The corn had been neglected. Weeds were springing up between the rows. In the house, his father was fretting because the hired hands were not feeding the cows properly and they were giving less milk. The clover was going to seed, while the hogs looked hungrily at it through the fence. No one was there to see that their noses were ringed and the gates opened. Some of the plows and harrows had been left in the fields, where they were rusting in the summer sun and rain. There was plenty of work for Henry. At first, from day to day, then, from week to week, he put off the trip to Detroit. He worked in the fields with the men, plowing, planting, and harvesting. He set the pace for the others to follow, as an owner must do on a farm. He was learning the art of managing men without losing the democratic feeling of being one of them. In the mornings, he was up before daylight and out to the barnyard. He fed the horses, watched that the milkings were thoroughly done, and gave orders for the day's work. When the great bell clanged once, he and all the men hurried into the house. They sat at one long table in the kitchen and ate breakfast, piping hot from the stove. After that they scattered, driving down the farm lanes to the fields while the sun rose. 
As the sun rose higher, coats came off, sleeves were rolled up, and shirts opened wide at the neck. They worked through the mornings, stopping gladly when the great bell clanged that dinner was ready. In the afternoons, Henry would ride, as needed, to the far fields for a diplomatic but authoritative word with the men plowing there. Sometimes he rode a little farther and bargained with the neighbor for a yearling heifer. Then, back at night to the big farmyard, where the cows must be milked, the horses watered and fed, and everything made comfortable and safe for the night. In the evenings, he pored over his mechanic journals by the sitting room lamp. It was a very different life from that in the machine shop, but he was learning a great many things he would find useful later. Margaret, Henry's sister, was by this time a healthy young woman with all the affairs of the household and dairy well in hand. The social affairs of the community began to center around her. In the evenings, the young men of the neighborhood rode over to propose picnics and hayrides. After church on Sundays, a dozen young people would come trooping out to the farm with her. Margaret would put on a white apron over her best dress and serve a big country dinner. Late in the afternoon, they separated into pairs, as young people will do, and walked the three miles to church for the evening services. It may be imagined that the girls of the neighborhood were interested when Henry appeared in church again. He was now a good-looking young man of twenty-one, back from the city. To the local Greenfield girls, he probably appeared as an alert, muscular fellow, with a droll humor and a whimsical smile. Moreover, he was the driver of the finest horses in the neighborhood and one of the heirs to the big farm. However, he is outspoken enough about his own attitude. He didn't care for girls. He was interested in machines. He wanted to get back to Detroit, where he could again take up his plans for that mammoth watch factory. In a few weeks, he had brought the farm up to its former running order. The crops were doing well, and the hired men had learned that there was a new boss running the farm. Henry had a little more time to spend in the farm blacksmith shop. He found that absurd steam engine he'd built five years before. One day he started it up and ran it around the yard. It was a weird-looking affair. The high wagon wheels warped and wobbly, the hybrid engine on top sputtering and wheezing and rattling. Yet, 
even though it was a cloud of smoke and sparks. It still ran. He had a hearty laugh at it and abandoned it. His father grew better slowly, but week by week, Henry was approaching the time when he could return to the work he liked. Late summer came with all the work of pulling in the crops. The harvest crew arrived from the next farm, twenty men, and Henry was busy in the fields from morning to night. Late in October, the last work of the summer was done. The fields lay bare and brown, waiting for the snow. Margaret Ford gave a great harvest supper with a quilting bee in the afternoon and corn husking in the evening. All the neighbors came from miles around. The big barns were crowded with the horses, and rows of them were tied under the sheds. In the house, the quilting frames were spread in the big attic, and all afternoon the women sewed and talked. In the evening, the men arrived, and then the long supper table was spread with Margaret's cooking, and all feasted. Clara Bryant was one of the guests. Her father was a prosperous farmer who lived eight miles from the Ford place, and Henry had scarcely seen her that summer. That night, they sat side by side, and he did notice the red in her cheeks and the way she laughed. After supper, there was corn husking in the big barn, where each young man tried to find the red ears that gave him permission to kiss one of the girls. Still later, they danced on the floor of the hay barn while the fiddler called the figures of the old square dances. The next week, Henry might have returned to Detroit and to the waiting project of the watch factory. But he didn't. He thought of Clara Bryant and realized that his prior disinterest in girls was unreasonable. Soon, there was no apparent reason why Henry Ford shouldn't return to his work in the machine shops. His father was recovered, and the farm was mostly buttoned up for the winter. The plans for the watch factory might be carried out. Yet, Henry stayed at home on the farm. Gradually, it became apparent to the neighborhood that the elder Ford's boy had gotten over his liking for city life. Farmers remarked to each other that Henry had come to his senses and knew he was well off. He'd have his share in as good of a farm as any man would want some day. There was no need for him to get out and hustle in Detroit. Probably, there were moments when Henry himself shared this same opinion. But his interest in mechanics was as great as ever. There was, however, his attraction to Clara Bryant. 
he made a few trips to Detroit with an intention which seemed to him earnest enough to revive the plans for the watch factory. The thought of Clara was always tugging at his mind, though, urging him to come back to Greenfield. It was a choice between his work and the girl. The girl won, and ten million fifty-cent Ford watches were lost to the world. I've decided not to go back to Detroit, Henry announced to the family at breakfast one day. I thought you'd come around to seeing it that way, his father said. You can do better here in the long run than you can in the city. If you want to take care of the livestock, I'll let one of the men go and pay you his wages this winter. All right, Henry said. His work as a machinist seemed to all of them as only an episode, and now definitely ended. He was in his early twenties then. He settled into the work of the farm as though he had never left. He milked cows, pitched hay, poured out oats, tossed corn, cleaned stalls, whitewashed hen houses, spread straw for the horses, and sorted apples in the cellar. In the blacksmith shop, Henry worked at the farm tools, sharpening the plows, refitting the harrows with teeth, oiling and cleaning the mowing machines. In the evening, he often saddled up and rode to the Bryant farm to see Clara. It was a courtship which did not go too smoothly. Henry was not the only Greenfield farmer's son who admired Clara Bryant. She was minded to divide her favor evenly among her suitors until some indefinite time in the future she would settle on someone. Often enough, Henry found another horse tied to the hitching post and another young man inside the house making himself agreeable to Clara. Welcomed by Clara's father, Henry would spend the evening talking politics with him while Clara and his rival popped corn or roasted apples on the hearth. Always a thinker, Henry had his own tricks. He built a light sleigh that winter, painted it red, and balanced it on cushy springs. The red beauty glided over the snow on smooth steel runners. No girl in Greenfield could have resisted the offer to ride in it. In the evenings, when the moon was full, Clara and Henry, warmly wrapped in fur robes, flashed down the snowy roads in a chime of sleigh bells. There were skating parties also, where Henry and Clara, mittened hand in hand, swept over the ice in long, smooth flight, their skates ringing. Or it happened 
that Henry stood warming his hands at the bank and watched Clara skating away with someone else and felt dejected. Somewhere between farm work and courtship, he found time to keep up with his mechanics trade journals. His interest in machinery was still strong, but he planned nothing new at this time. All his constructive imagination was diverted into another channel, his interest in Clara. But Clara couldn't make up her mind to choose between her suitors. The winter passed, and Henry, torn between these two interests, had accomplished little with either one. Spring and the spring work came, plowing, harrowing, sowing, and planting. Henry worked from long before dawn until the deepening twilight hit the fields. Due to all the spring farm work, he could only see Clara on Sundays. Then summer arrived with picnics, Sunday dinners, and occasional excursions to Detroit for an outing on the lake. By the end of that summer, it was generally accepted among the Greenfield young folks that Henry Ford and Clara Bryant were a couple. The third spring of Henry's stay on the farm arrived. Henry went over his bank account, a respectable sum. It was made up of his earnings on the farm and a few ventures in cattle buying and selling. Well, father, he said one day, I guess I'll be getting married. All right, his father said. I'll give you that south lot, and you can have the lumber to build a house when you're ready. Apparently, Henry had made up his mind to settle the matter. No doubt, behind the adoration for Clara, there was an unconscious feeling that he had spent enough time in courtship. He was getting impatient to get back to his other interests, to once again have an orderly, smooth routine of life with margins of time for machinery. In April, he and Clara went up to Detroit and were married. A couple weeks later, they returned to Greenfield. Clara had plans for the new house sketched out in her suitcase. Henry had the responsibility of caring for a wife, but he also had a bundle of mechanics trade journals. His thoughts of machinery had been placed way on the back burner. But an upcoming trip to Detroit in the next episode is going to get those old wheels turning again. This is where I'll pause part two of the story of Henry Ford. Stay tuned for part three. If you'd like to encourage me to keep making episodes and get access to all my bonus episodes, then just become a Silk member. 
you can even become a Silk member for free for a limited time. Just use the link in the episode notes. Thank you for listening to my podcast.